Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com slash impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T. Welcome to the August edition of this month in sales enablement. The Barbenheimer of enablements. <laughs> no matter if you're into hard-hitting analysis and discussions or into a fun roundup of the enablement community, we have you covered. And as always, I am joined by the wonderful Devin McDermott. Devin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I can't believe it's Team Eyes Day already. And it's an absolute delight to be here as always. I'm so pumped to dig into all the hot off the presses news. And since we last spoke, I think this is since we last spoke, proof of extraterrestrial life has been confirmed. And I can't help but wonder, what if they have revenue enablement in other galaxies? Like, what do we think about this? This is where I'm at today. So <laughs> what do we think? I don't know. You're based in the desert too, which means that you probably see lots of UFO activity. More often than you'd imagine. <laughs> but <laughs> Very mysterious. We have so much to talk about. Once again, we have research reports. I want to pick your brain on a couple of things that came up in recent conversations that I led with clients and members of the enablement community. We have a bunch of interesting articles around AI, around remote work. We've got a bit of social buzz once again with a bit of a controversial topic. I don't want to give away too much on that front, but the very first thing I wanted to pick your brain on, Devin, is a discussion that I recently had with clients and also with members of the enablement community, which was around the development of training programs, right? And if we tackle training programs as a change initiative and the theme of change management in enablement comes up over and over again, and for those non-initiated, you know, when we talk about change in its most basic principle, we always talk about preparing for change, implementing change, and then reinforcing change. And no matter what sort of enablement initiative we talk about, those three areas should always be covered. Now, when it comes to developing training, part of preparing for change, apart from developing training content, developing the actual learning experience, is also to engage the frontline sales managers in the development of the training, right? And there's different nuances that I see or different, I see a broad spectrum of engagement of frontline sales managers in the development of training. And I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on that one, because the range that I pretty much see is in its most basic form is just to give managers a heads up of what you want to achieve, maybe give them access to some of the training content, but not really like just as an FYI yeah, and do it that way to the other end of the spectrum, which is always something that I aspire to do as much as possible, is to actually have the sales managers to run through the training before it is rolled out to the broader sales team to give them the opportunity to, first of all, become familiar with the content, 
So they can then be involved in the reinforcement and the guidance of their sales reps and actually owning that knowledge that is being taught and also to give them a sense of ownership around the content. What are your thoughts on that one? And what have you seen in the past being done in the organizations that you've worked for in terms of the engagement of sales managers when it comes to the de development of training programs? Totally. Yeah. So managers are key players in that sustained change management. So yes, like bare minimum, they need to be informed about the training. They need to see it in advance, weigh in on it if necessary. But I think getting sales leadership involved is a non-negotiable, especially if it's a topic that they are responsible for enforcing and coaching on. But even if it's a topic that says enablement owned, I'll make sure that I consult them, let them know what we're covering, get their input, ensure that they're aligned on the focus and our execution plan. But again, like discovery training, medic rollout, sales process initiatives. I have my frontline sales leaders heavily involved in these processes. And I'll often encourage them to be the face of the session. So even if I'm building the learning experiences and materials, having the sales leader speak about their experience and the importance of, let's say, if it's medic, you know, qualifying the champion to make sure they're not a coach or just a supporter and using real examples from their career, it's a game changer. So I always want my sales leaders involved in any way we can. But imagine, you know, having a sales leader record a video about their experience and having them help to shape those coaching guides that they're going to be leveraging to ensure their teams are adopting the change. But I think, at the end of the day, our frontline sales managers are the ones that our teams want to hear from. And so for me, I'm okay being the director, the stage manager, and, and giving them the opportunity to be the face of the programs that we're, we're delivering. And so I think seeing your sales leaders speak to the new process or the new approach is the first step to driving that real buy-in and that real adoption. And from the perspective of the reps, it's not just like, oh, yeah, enablement's making me do this stuff, whatever. It's like, no, my leader is here. They're sharing their why. They're leaning in. And again, for a lot of these, I'll curate and build most of the resources for them and have them insert their experience and weigh in on you know, how they're actually delivering it. But the best CRO actually I ever had, he joined every single enablement session. He asked questions. He was kind of demonstrating the behavior. He wanted his frontline leaders and his teams to also deliver on. And so the CRO, he recorded examples for our trainings. He encouraged his team to take the certifications and he hyped up enablement as not just like, hey, they're here to do this stuff and then walk away. He made enablement non-negotiable, but also made it something that was super relevant for his teams. So for me, it's like I may have more experience in discovery training and facilitation than my frontline leaders, but I want their team members to hear from them. So I think it's a non-negotiable. And in fact, it's like, the key to long-term sustained change management. Excellent. And have you come across situations where there was pushback from sales leadership in terms of the engagement that you wanted to achieve from frontline sales managers or pushback from the frontline sales managers themselves? Certainly, especially you know, like in a fast-paced startup, everyone's really busy. Oh, I've got to coach my teams. I've got to do this stuff. I'm way too busy. And so you definitely hear a lot of that. But I think once they see the power of like, if their peer comes in, 
and supports that training and they don't or supports that build, they can kind of see the difference. And so I know there's like a lot of talk, you know, do you make training required or not? And it's like, well, let's just, the proof is in the pudding, let's show the results. And I think for the leaders who are maybe not fully bought in or don't think it's like for them to lean into those initiatives, if we can get their peers involved or even let's say one layer below them involved in the training, we can kind of show them that there is a better way. But listen, it's not always that easy. Everyone's busy, everyone has things on their plate, but if we're building into this initiative, if we're spending the time on training and on delivery, it better be worth it because we're hoping to drive business results from it. So people should have time for that, right? If they don't, that tells me maybe this isn't a priority, but you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> who am I to say? The other thing I wanted to pick your brain on, which is also somewhat related, is about the rollout of sales methodologies or qualification frameworks. This has come up specifically in the coaching sessions that I've run with enablers as part of the course that I offer. And a few of them have actually recently embarked on a journey on rolling out this new methodology or qualification framework. And a couple of the things or something that was really surprising to me was the expectation in terms of the impact that is being able to achieve <laughs> after the rollout has been completed. In Basically, all cases that I have come across in those scenarios, the sales leadership pretty much expected an instant impact. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty crazy. So before I share kind of my thoughts on that one, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you think is a reasonable time frame or how you typically set expectations from sales leadership when it comes to those sort of new initiatives, new methodologies, and new qualification frameworks, and when you can actually expect to see the impact for the revenue. Yeah. Oh, I think this is a great example of bringing your sales leaders into the fold as you're scoping and building and making sure they actually understand that scoping takes time, building takes time, rollout takes time, adoption takes time. And for enablement, I know we always want to exceed expectations that we'll get all of this done in two weeks, but really being clear, hey, adopting and, and driving change in an organization not only change, I can do the thing. Can I do it well? Am I achieving mastery? All of those things take time. And I think it's important to show the time investment for all of those things up front. So if it takes a quarter to build out your qualification methodology, the approach for your business, logic says that you're not going to see immediate results from that because, you know, if we're communicating the change timeline appropriately, the leadership team should know. And I think it also depends on what the current state metrics are. Why did we launch this methodology to begin with? Where do we want to move the needle, right? So if we have a eight to 10 month sales process, we're not going to see an immediate result from our new methodology because it's going to take, our sales process is taking a long time. We're going to see each of those moments within, if it's medic, right, or something like that, evolve over time. So I think it's really understanding or agreeing and aligning with leadership on what do we want to track? How are we going to track it? And how long does it take for us to see these metrics and insights in our day-to-day, -day, right? And so if we're looking at sales cycle length, win rates, we can then map out what are the leading and lagging indicators? Where do we start to see trends, right? If we see an improvement week over week, that's great. What does that look like after a quarter? And so I think just thinking about all of those things at the same time, rather than, yep, we're going to get it live and we're going to be a, a medic shop. It's going to be amazing. And I'll give you a very real example. I, I think I shared this story here before, but... I joined an organization that made a declaration that they were a challenger shop. They're like, we're a challenger shop. Great. But it was only in their sales organization. No one else in the business even knew that they were a challenger shop. And they delivered one workshop. And it was a really good workshop. Let me tell you, it was beautiful. I saw it. It was like my first day at the company. 
and they set up a gong scorecard. And I was like, cool, you're not actually a challenger shop, but I'm going to play along. I'm new. So I want to say about a day, a couple days after the training, the CEO and I had a call and they asked me, so is it working? And I was like, what do you mean? Is it working? Like, yes, we delivered the training. It was so good. And you know, now we got to get our managers comfortable coaching. Like, no, no, is it working? And I said, what do you mean? Is it working? And they're like, is it moving the needle? So again, like if you're rushing into this stuff and you're like, okay, we need to become a medic shop. We're a medic shop. We're doing change management wrong, right? We're not running that process. So I think it really comes down to kind of mapping out the business, mapping out what change we want to see. What are the leading and lagging indicators? How can we track that? Have we benchmarked current state? Do we have a hypothesis for future state? When you start to speak that language with your sales leadership team, I think, I hope, it starts to click that, oh, wait, this is all going to take a little bit of time. And we can start to track those moments that matter along the way to say, is this working? Are we on the right track? Do we need to do a little bit of reinforcement? Do we need to tweak our approach? And so I think, again, it's about clearly communicating all of that up front, aligning with leadership, and then finding those moments, again, the not the quick wins, but the moments where you're like, ah, we're doing great. Let's celebrate this moment and then lean into it and keep tracking it. So that's really a non-answer for you because I've experienced this in all different ways and shapes. Like we hired Challenger at my previous company to roll out Challenger. They gave us a two-year timeline. And I was like, damn, that's amazing. Imagine if we had that much time. So I kind of use that now <laughs> in the back of my mind of like the months spent on just manager enablement and getting your organization ready. And so again, like I think having examples of organizations that have done it, some example timelines are always a great way to start. But that's a good question. <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree with what you say about the leading and lagging indicators. I think having those in place really makes it easier to showcase progress. But to me, it ultimately always comes down to the, first of all, the sales cycle duration. So how often exactly you can actually attempt as a sales rep to use that methodology or the qualification framework or whatever it might be. And because of that, you know, like how often can you actually reinforce that training content for yourself and so on? In addition to that, I think it's also the timeline always comes down to the amount of practice yes. you get and also the uh, coaching support, obviously, from managers. So I think if safe practice environment through role plays and simulations and the coaching are given, you are able to achieve a much better trajectory in terms of the adoption for the organization. But I mean, if you're really pressed for a timeline, it's really hard to say what that would be. But if somebody would really hold a gun to my head and force me to make a statement on that front, I would say probably two to three times the sales cycle duration. Exactly. And then when it comes to like super long sales cycles for really heavy duty enterprise infrastructure technology, it then comes down to the leading indicators, you know, because you don't want to wait one and a half years until you actually see the impact. So it's <laughs> <laughs> so true. I always honestly, when I'm having these conversations with my stakeholders, I always pull up that chart that Mike has shared a few times. I think it's in the book as well, Mike Kunkel, of the what does it take to achieve mastery and what does that actually look like? Like one training is cool. A reinforcement session is cool. But to actually get this right and to get our teams executing flawlessly, it takes time. And so I, I always flash that up whenever we're having these types of conversations. <laughs> Excellent. Just quickly for anybody tuning in, all the resources that we are discussing will actually also share in the newsletter, the This Month in Sales Enablement newsletter. It's run by uh, my business, FFWD. You get loads of 
insights around enablement, lots of resources, and then, of course, also the roundup of this month in sales enablement with all the associated resources. I would encourage you to sign up and get all these resources delivered to your inbox. Now, the next agenda item is, I just wanted to revisit that research report, which is the State of Sales Enablement report from Sales Enablement Pro, just to call out a couple of stats and also to get your opinion on those, Devin. The very first stats that I want to touch on is a question that they have posed as part of that report, which stated, how do you think buyers have changed over the last 12 months? And 53% of buyers, according to the survey, need more financial justification for purchases. Obviously, due to the economic environment, everybody tightening their belt. So there is a need for justification to actually get those budgets approved. Devin, is that also something that you have seen? And how have you tackled in the past when formalizing initiatives to actually equip sellers with that knowledge that they need to support sellers on that front? So the current business I'm in is a very different business model. Our buyers are quite different. But as somebody who is a buyer of software myself, I know we are experiencing that as well. So we're trying to consolidate as much of our tech as we possibly can. And we are, bottom line, looking for the best price possible. But companies that can come in with like a solid ROI calculator or a solid business case that I can confidently share with my CFO is going to be the winner, right? But it's really also the companies that can do the most. And I think you and I were chatting about this. We're starting to see more and more companies like Gong building in functionality that eliminates the need for other tech. So I'd say like the businesses as a buyer, I'm looking at, is there a one-stop shop for everything I need? And is it good enough? Can I get it into my organization? Because having something that's good enough is better than having nothing. So I think that's certainly a big one is the being cost conscious is more prevalent than ever. So I'd say that's something that I'm seeing myself. And also for peers that work at software companies, they're getting hit pretty hard. I've, I've even had companies that I've looked at that I'm like, we simply can't afford. You come back and say, okay, we're ready to drop our price and renegotiate. So it's an interesting environment out there. Absolutely. From my experience, first of all, I think there's a really broad range of organizations in terms of the emphasis that is being put on business case creation, right? So I come across a lot of organizations that don't emphasize business cases at all. So the attitude is pretty much, okay, we provide them with all the information that they need with all the pricing and whatnot. And then we let buyers create the business case on their end, which is obviously not a great approach, especially considering the current economic environment. And then there's other organizations that pretty much as part of the sales process require a business case to be created in each case, right? And those organizations become really good at it and become really good at also creating a business case according to the different personas and different industries that they're targeting, right? Like from my perspective, what I see the difference being in those different organizations is just, first of all, the business case side of things being the way they operate and how things are done around here. Also, really putting emphasis on the business acumen being taught as part of sales training programs and also the buyer acumen and really deeply understanding the different buyer personas, what they're dealing with, not only from an end user perspective, but also the budget owners, then also equipping them with a business acumen in terms of the understanding of the financial KPIs and all the factors impacting the value that the platform is delivering to then formulate the business case. So that's kind of the spectrum that I see. And I 
think that there is literally no downside to pushing for that sort of business case culture. Again, I would encourage anybody who hasn't made the business case development uh, set part of their sales process and hasn't incorporated that sort of things in their enablement program to really become good at it and upskill on that front because right now budgets are very tight. Yeah. And I'll tell you as a buyer, I couldn't agree more. I hate this expression, but like I'm really busy, right? So procuring software is a small part of my job. If I have to build my own business case for each piece of tech I'm looking at, I'm not going to do it. But if you're going to build one for me, I'm going to engage, I can update it. And so I think that's a, a huge differentiator, especially for if you want to really push the deal forward in an organization, give your buyer everything they need to sell internally, to make the case. You're going to put yourself far ahead of your competitors by doing that alone and sharing real customer examples and like throw some customer phone numbers over so we can have conversations. But that's just my wish list. Absolutely. Now, the other stat that I want to call out from the State of Sales Enablement 2023 report from Sales Enablement Pro is something that is related to buyer engagement content. And the statement here is, my organization understands what content is engaging buyers and 50% agree, 33% disagree, and 17% neither agree or disagree, right? So that means only 50% of organizations state that they understand what content is engaging buyers. Devin, from your perspective, why do you think that is? Is it a question of the quality of conversations that are being led as part of the sales process so that the sales reps don't really understand and therefore the organization doesn't really understand what sort of topics and what sort of content is really being seen as valuable from buyers? Or is it a question of the reporting either not being available or not being shared? What do you think is the root cause of that? Yeah, I'm going to chalk it up to the reporting piece. Because I know for me, historically, that's been the challenge where like, I'm giving my reps everything they need. These are the right resources at the right time based on problem set, blah, blah, blah. I have no idea if they're using it or not, what they're sending, how they're sending it. And so not having any of those insights, that becomes something that I'm not thinking about. It's not top of mind for me. So I used to say like, and I still kind of feel this way, but Gong, non-negotiable or call AI, non-negotiable for an enablement tech stack, but a CMS with content tracking, guided selling, digital sales rooms is also a non-negotiable right now, as far as I'm concerned. Having those insights has been absolutely game-changing for us and being able to see how customers are engaging with the content, how they're sharing it. If they're not touching it, why not? And then more importantly, being able to go back to my marketing and product marketing teams and go, hey, all those you know white papers that you keep building no one's using them and no customers are looking at them. Can we reprioritize our approach? And now that's data backed. So I'd say in my experience, it's not having access to those data and insights. Yes, there's certainly ways you can go about collecting that information that's a little bit more time intensive, a little bit more analog, but having those metrics, it's been game changing. Like We launched our CMS a few months ago and just even seeing how our reps and our account managers have changed the way that they're sharing content and what they're sharing has been really interesting to see. Mm. So I've been operating in, in B2B for 15 years now, and I think I've come across two organizations that really practice what I would consider the content intelligence nirvana, as I would <laughs> like to describe it. I love it. Which is essentially sales and marketing talking to each other in a way that marketing really puts a lot of emphasis on sharing with sales the analytics around content engagement, right? So that's the sales team really understands from a quantitative perspective where the engagement is happening so that they are prepared, so to speak, 
for certain conversations so that they understand, okay, this is the sort of content that really creates engagement and generates engagement in such and such industries and such and such segments, right? So that they are prepared on that front. And then sales, on the other hand, providing that qualitative feedback to marketing based on conversations. Okay, these are the topics that have recently really come up in conversations. And I wish we really had content around that. And also the assumption being that if that topic area and those sort of topics are relevant to buyers, there's really a value in creating marketing content and exposing the market to that sort of content as well. So that's, I think that's the ideal case from my point of view. And if you practice that, which hardly anybody does, <laughs> I think that number, that 50% number would be much higher. So I think there's still, from a content perspective, a lot of inefficiency out there. I think everybody understands that content is important, but creating those efficiencies is obviously important to make sure you're not working in the wrong direction as well. Absolutely. And I swear I don't work for Gong, but they do <laughs> a feature called topics where you can start to see like when we talk about these topics and share resources around these topics, the deals tend to result in closed one more often than not and so on. And so even just using those insights, they're imperfect at times to just make smarter decisions. And again, have that feedback loop with marketing and with your team. But there's so much great tech out there to expose insights that I never even thought about before, right? So I want to talk to those Nirvana companies. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Awesome. Now, the next item on the agenda is an article that you have researched by the name of Why Revenue Enablement is Not Just Sales Enablement. What is that one all about? Yeah. So this article includes insights from Enablement Pros. So uh, Whitney Syke and Del Nakai contributed to this one. And the article states that traditional sales enablement is no longer enough to achieve customer-led growth in today's economy, and that it is now time for all teams to start the transition from either sales first or sales only enablement to strategic enablement. The article also offers up best practices to begin the organizational change journey to prepare for a consolidated enablement team. And Felix, this is a topic that you and I have now discussed a number of times on this show. We even covered an article last month around that shift to business enablement to create a more consistent customer experience. And I think this is a topic that we're going to keep seeing more and more so, I love spending some quality time here. And we've seen the emergence of business enablement across various industries, and we're starting to really see the profound impact it can have on the customer experience and the bottom line for businesses. We also know that bringing enablement efforts into one house or under one umbrella creates momentum. It creates higher quality resources, better processes, and really allows you to build consistent, cohesive programs that scale. So overall, the article makes a very convincing case for the importance of revenue enablement. It states, you know, the competitive marketplace is fierce and businesses need to do everything they can to give their sales and customer success teams the resources they need to actually succeed. And revenue enablement is a critical part of that equation. So we know revenue, GTM, business enablement, whatever we're going to call it, we're going to call it revenue enablement for this article, is the future of enablement. But we also know, like everything else, it will not happen overnight. So tips from the article to begin building and scoping and also operationalizing revenue enablement in your organization include a few things. 
First, it's actually assessing how buttoned up processes and programs along with the systems and teams are in your post-sales organization. So if you're just focusing on sales enablement, you might have no idea what's happening over there on the post-sales side. And then from there, understanding what is it actually going to take to shift the post-sales environment to really prepare for this change. It's also important to know what the executive team actually thinks about the post-sales team, how they're prioritizing that team and their strategy, and then Not finally, but we also need to understand if the leaders in our post-sales organization are ready to change, if they're ready for enablement, and if they're willing to change their approach. And then finally, can enablement support the change efforts needed to bring the post-sales team into the enablement fold? So according to the article, if your CS team is enablement ready based on that criteria we just mentioned, you can take a few actions to begin really building out the revenue enablement function in your business. So the first step is to bring all revenue enablement under one leader and into one team to really make sure we are aligning everything we do to the customer life cycle. From there, build a center of excellence model to drive that like super aligned, meaningful business results and to begin to tighten up customer interaction so each one feels like the next step on that customer's journey, not like a two steps forward, two steps back adventure as they get passed off to all the different teams in your organization. The second thing is to bring the CS and sales worlds together. So we can do that by building trust, alignment, and empathy. And this point in particular really resonated with me. So I worked at a startup where the sales and CS teams were so disconnected. The sales team literally had no idea what happened after they got the customer signature. So sometimes, maybe more often than not, they were tossing less than qualified deals over the line. The CS team was then stuck basically reselling the customer and either having to churn them or wasting time trying to make this bad fit customer a good fit. So no surprise, CS started to build some deep resentment for the sales team. And so one of my first goals was to figure out how do we unify the processes? How do we educate all of our customer-facing teams on each part of that customer journey and how every interaction impacts the next one? We also started leading some joint sessions with those teams to show how the alignment really shaped that customer experience. We did, you know, gong call reviews, and then we celebrated CS and sales folks who partnered together to drive an incredible customer experience. So that one really got me because I'm like, I have seen this happen and it can truly make or break everything that your customer thinks and feels about your organization. So back to the article, which suggests bringing your CS team into your deals a little bit earlier. And I also like the idea of keeping sales involved through maybe your customer kickoff to further solidify that alignment and to also be there to confirm what they agreed upon in the sales process. A third tip from the article is to reframe post-sales to mean revenue and growth and to really actively and proactively start pulling your CS team into the revenue engine and to ensure that you're building the right environment for CS to be super effective and support them in the way that we've supported sales historically, right? So with that messaging, that buyer content, tech resources, customer training, and upskilling our teams in a way that's relevant to their unique roles in CS. The fourth item is to make sure you're upskilling your post-sales team in a methodical way. So building those relevant sales skills in your CS org relevant to the conversations they're having, like discovery and negotiation, and really immerse your teams in the what, why, and how around the core metrics that they are impacting. So what are their leading and lagging indicators? Things like CSAT, LTV, and churn. The article also offers some tips 
to sharpen your team's skills, like building the right programs, aligned to the right behaviors, coaching and certification programs, and more opportunities for role-playing and practice to really level up those customer conversations. Finally, the article states that revenue enablement is essential for businesses that want to achieve sustainable growth in the long term, and that by investing in revenue enablement, businesses can create a culture of customer centricity and empower their teams to deliver the best possible experience to their customers. So the bottom line, revenue enablement is where it's at because it can really help businesses increase sales productivity, improve customer satisfaction, hopefully reduce churn, increase LTV, and all the other good stuff that comes along with an incredible customer experience. And like, Selfishly, I love this article. It mirrored most of my progression into revenue enablement. Um, so when I you know, first got into enablement, I started in a sales enablement role. And once we were able to prove the power of our function, we took on CS enablement and finally customer education to create that center of excellence and build those repeatable processes, programs, and systems. And it allowed us to build programs that scaled and scaled predictably. And it was game-changing. So love this one. I don't think this is going to be the last article that we read on revenue enablement, but Felix, I'd love to get your take on this. So do you have any tips that you can share for folks that are looking to make that move from, let's say, sales-only enablement to revenue enablement? And what are some of the potential issues you think they might encounter on their way there? Yeah, I think the biggest opportunity for folks that currently are focused on sales and want to expand their remit into revenue enablement is to really focus on this, those interfaces between marketing and sales and sales and customer success and really make sure that the transition is as smooth as possible, right? Like which opens up the conversation with those different teams and then also opens up avenues for discussions around additional gains that you can achieve with enablement programs. But I mean, specifically the interface that I'm talking about between marketing and sales is facilitating that discussion around the handover, meaning MQLs, MQLs being delivered by marketing to sales. What the definition of MQLs is putting a service level agreement in place between marketing and sales, meaning how many MQLs are being delivered by marketing according to the MQL definition at which frequency, and then also how quick sales are in processing those leads and contacting those people and so on. I think that's one big win that can be achieved by sales enablement, facilitating that discussion. And then from a customer success point of view, you touched on it, which is the disconnect between customer success and sales. And especially if sales promise the world and don't necessarily ironically set customer success up for success. <laughs> <laughs> in those sort of situations, you really have a bad customer experience. And I think that's the biggest pitfall when it comes to the customer experience that you can possibly have. Because when you think about sales interacting with customers, sales excitement pretty much peaks when the deal is signed, right? Whereas the customer's excitement peaks after the deal is signed, right? Like when it comes to actually getting started and so on. And considering that and the excitement of customers that you would typically have once a deal is signed and once customers embark on actually realizing that value that they are looking for in purchasing that solution or that product that they want to purchase, having a really robust process in place to make sure that there's not that disconnect can really have a massive positive impact on the customer experience. I would generally recommend focusing on those areas. So those connection points between marketing, sales and sales and customer success. And then the second part of your question 
in terms of the potential pitfalls, I think anybody considering embarking on that revenue enablement journey already, I think, has moved beyond that notion of enablement just being training and you really focusing just on activities and staying in your lane, so to speak, which is a topic that we touch on in a little bit as well. But I really strongly believe that there is a danger in spreading yourself too thin, especially if resourcing is scarce. Right? So that means that if you embark on that journey, you really have to, it's a great ambition and I'm all for it, but you really have to make sure that you're resourced appropriately. Because if you don't get the basics right in the first place, and then you spread yourself too thin and want to add all these other things to your remit, then you really have the danger of you losing momentum because you don't generate the results that you want to achieve. You try to do 10 things at once and none of them are done properly. I think that's really a situation to avoid. And in those sort of scenarios where you're not resourced appropriately, I would always advocate for doing fewer things right rather than trying to boil the ocean. Yeah. The next article that we have on our agenda is an article that is all about AI and enablement. And this is really a hot topic. What is that one all about? So it's called Why Sales Enablement Must Embrace AI. So why do we need to embrace AI? I mean, the reasons are endless. So this is a blog post by Tony Grout, the chief product officer of Showpad. And Tony discusses how generative AI is revolutionizing the world of sales enablement. And listen, as you said, Felix, we all know that AI is essential for enablement professionals who want to stay ahead of the curve. So I'm going to give you a little golden girls. Are you ready? So <laughs> picture it. Planet Earth 2023, where aliens are real and AI is automating all of those repetitive tasks that are currently performed by sales enablement professionals. And they are now finally free to focus on more strategic activities. So, you know, like those repetitive tasks, like creating and managing content, tracking sales metrics, coaching teams, AI can tackle those repetitive admin tasks that take up our time and also surface up insights that used to be somewhat challenging or difficult to find or even decipher. And so the outcome here by focusing on strategic initiatives, your customer-facing teams can now become more productive. And through the use of AI, hopefully, they can more readily achieve their goals and operate with laser precision. But the real spotlight or feature in this particular blog post is on personalization and content personalization. So kind of in line with what we were just chatting about. The goal flagged in the article is to create a unique and highly customized buyer experience and using AI to gain insights into those buyer behaviors and preferences, and then leveraging this information to improve the effectiveness of sales enablement communication and programs. And so you also know I, I love the show Columbo. And so I like to think like AI can help our teams do a little private investigating or really do like way better research on their prospects without all of the the hard work, dare I say, and figures out what your prospects care about, what their challenges are, what they need. We know our buyers are more informed than ever and they expect a highly customized experience. They don't need us wasting their time by resharing information that they've already seen. So we can use AI to surface up the content that is hyper-relevant to their challenges, their business, what they want to achieve. And so if a rep really wants to impress a prospect, they can use AI to nudge them to share that right resource or follow-up email campaign that is going to anticipate the buyer needs and questions in a way that we couldn't have done before. So finally, I like this part. The article states that AI is most powerful when it's used to complete tasks that are hard for humans to do 
but easy for humans to verify. So I love that. This isn't fodder for AI buzzkill just yet because AI is not a replacement for sales enablement professionals. It's a tool we can use to augment our skills and drive effectiveness. And we also know in the article states, the most effective sales enablement programs will use a combination of human and AI powered solutions. And AI is moving fast and we need to stay on top of it. So our enablement professionals take that course that Jonathan's launching, stay up to date on the latest AI trends to make the most of the technology. One thing I wanna call out, there is a second half to the article. This one is designed to help sell Showpad and their seemingly very cool AI capabilities. So I think it's definitely worth exploring if you're in the market for new enablement tech. But as you've heard, the article also provides a pretty comprehensive overview of how AI is changing the world of enablement. So I'd say this is an interesting read for any enablement professional who wants to stay ahead of the curve. And if you are somebody who's looking for a new tech stack that's already leveraging some of these AI capabilities, check it out. It's in the newsletter. But Felix, on this topic, where are you seeing the enablers that you've engaged with effectively using AI these days? And are there any tech providers using AI that, that have caught your eye that you think are pretty cool? In terms of the actual use of AI, I think, again, the main use case from my point of view that I come across is just getting inspiration for content creation. So basically overcoming that blank piece of paper and getting started with ideation around certain content, also problem solving. There's certain scenarios, especially from a stakeholders management perspective, which is something that is probably, I would say about 70% of the discussions that I have from a coaching perspective as part of my course is things related to stakeholder management. A lot of enablers that I know have started using ChatGPT in particular to outline scenarios and get input into how to resolve those issues because ChatGPT is really good at logical reasoning and actually providing information around certain situations that need to be resolved can actually be helpful for ChatGPT to provide those sort of solutions, right? So that's something that I've seen more and more often being done. In terms of the tech providers that are out there, I see tech providers integrating AI capabilities left, right, and center. So especially conversational AI, so mm -hmm. different flavors of ChatGPT. I have seen, especially from a coaching perspective, basically role play, I've seen that being integrated. So essentially vendors like Second Nature, for example, they use a ChatGPT-powered coaching engine. We talked about that one before. They offer that free interview practice program. I think we covered that a couple of months ago. From a coaching perspective, I think that is being done. From a content discovery perspective, that is being done. So basically having a very intuitive way to search for content. Something else that I also have recently come across is a vendor that supports proposal creation through conversational AI. So basically allows Ooh. sellers to share certain variables and components of the deal. And rather than having a deal desk or different subject matter experts pulling together the proposal, and the pricing, the AI basically does that for you. And obviously, especially for industries that deal with very complex proposals and lots of different components and lots of different variables that can really create efficiencies as well. So I think there's lots of different exciting things happening. As you said, I think AI is, even though it's already impressive, it's still in its infancy. I think we just need to upskill and stay on top of it. And again, this is not the Jonathan Crawford AI course <laughs> promo segment, but uh, I'm really excited to hear from somebody who spent a lot of time mastering that space. And 
I think will hopefully be useful for lots of different folks out there. But Devin, how, how have you used AI since it's kind of become more prevalent? I know you've run a workshop previously with your team around integrating AI in the workflow. What's been happening on your end on that front? Yeah, we're building our skills. So right now we're still using it to build out way more microlearning content and reinforcement content. So taking some of the longer form sessions or job aids that we've developed and using ChatGPT and Google Bard to distill those down and create really powerful reinforcement quizzes, knowledge nudges, and things that would have historically taken us a really long time to develop. So now we're using that tech. We've been curating a library of like best queries and best practices and even baking in chat GPT prompts into some of our templates that we're building to empower our SMEs to also leverage that functionality to create more high quality content so that they're spending the bulk of their time on reviewing and editing versus like net new builds. That's been really effective. And a few folks in my organization started a Slack channel today on AI tips. And so it's been really cool to see all of the different ways our teams are starting to leverage it and just bring that knowledge together. Someone from our sales organization was finding ways to leverage AI to reduce time spent researching, to extract more information from websites for our team. So really cool stuff happening. I need the course, so I'm waiting for it. But I've really enjoyed leveraging it so far. Again, it's created so much more momentum where like I'd always be like, oh, I got to get that reinforcement thing done or, you know, and I'd always like put that to the wayside because it would take too much time. Now it doesn't. It's awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Now, we had a bit of a controversy popping up on social media just recently. As we all know, the tech sector has been dealing with lots of layoffs. And I just wanted to touch on one instance that really became a thing on LinkedIn, a post that has had a lot of attention. The person that posted was a sales leader from a technology company, which I will not name and will also won't share the post because I always want to give companies as well as people the benefit of the doubt. And because of that, I don't want to specifically point that out here or call that out here. But some of you might have seen that. But what happened in a particular case was that sales leader relocated from Australia to a location in Southeast Asia for that technology company and basically dealt with a situation where it was continuously reinforced and restated that there won't be any layoffs happening. The company continuously stated that they have full confidence in him. They have even confirmed after he checked with them that he's okay to sign a 12-month lease for a new apartment and whatnot. And before you know it, a couple of weeks later, lots of layoffs happening. He is left with a new brand new lease. Commission payments weren't paid to him that were still due. Basically, the company completely cut him off and left him with a massive lease, having to leave the country very soon because he was not allowed to work there anymore and so on. So if all that is true, very unethical behavior, obviously, and particularly problematic considering that that particular company also had released an ethics code to their shareholders publicly, which touched on a lot of those different areas. In the ethics code, it stated the exact opposite of what eventually happened to that sales leader. He posted about this experience. It was basically formatted as an open letter to the CEO of the company, and it generated lots of engagement. Last time I checked, it had like over a thousand reactions, which equates typically to about 50,000 to 100,000 views of the content. So pretty much a PR disaster for that company on that front. But 
I think that really goes to show some of the things that are happening right now. And I think it's problematic, not only from an ethical point of view, but also for businesses, because there will be some sort of repercussions for them. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that one, Devin. What do you think will actually be the repercussions for behavior like that from businesses? Like, do you think it will damage the business as an employer brand? Do you think it damages the leadership of the business, the senior executive leadership, because they're ultimately in charge? Or is it more of a question of the direct managers of those people affected, you know, it being negatively reflected on them? Like, where do you think the repercussions lie, if there are any? Or is it just a question of, people just thinking about it, but not really changing their behavior when it comes to actually picking their employers or picking their business partners? Yeah, I think it's such an interesting question. So I think it all depends on which perspective we're looking at it from. So if I'm that person, the head of sales that is experiencing this, I'm likely going to blame the entire organization or the person who delivered that news to me. So more often than not, it's the frontline leaders who typically have no say in a reduction in force or in that process, who are the ones that are getting beat up for like, I can't believe you didn't tell me, you misled me. Again, what I've seen a lot of those folks that are delivering the news, maybe learned about it the day before, maybe a week before if they're lucky. But what I'm hopeful for is that more people like this sales leader start to speak up and that we start to take those comments, those open letters, those glass door reviews seriously. For so long, it was like, oh, anybody that speaks up, they're just unhappy. That's not how it really is. And I think we're really starting to see like employees have a voice. They have a choice in where they want to work and they can really start to drive what people will accept and not accept in their future employment. And I think especially because this company put out their code of conduct that they would never do these things and it's clearly documented that feel so inauthentic. And so I think what's happening in a lot of organizations that nobody's actually talking about. So I'm hopeful that more folks like this sales leader speaks up about their experience, what happened along the way, how they were communicated with, and kind of comparing that to the performative work that their organization is doing to say, look at how great we are. We are following all the best practices. We would never do that to you, but we're going to totally destroy your life in the process. So I think it truly depends on where the blame is going to be placed by job seekers and folks in that organization. But again, I'm hopeful that more people are empowered to productively speak out about their real experiences. I think it's really going to change the game in terms of prospective employees actually interviewing their companies and their leadership team, where I think more often than not, it's like, oh, I hope they like me. I hope they pick me. Not anymore. So I like the direction we're going. I hate that this happened. It's absolutely horrible. But hopefully more organizations will be held accountable for these very flippant decisions that they seem to be making. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope so too. I think in a current environment where there's probably more job seekers than there's roles available, I know it won't be as prevalent, but once the job market shifts and talent is harder to source for businesses, I think that's where it comes to bite them. Yeah. And where you will really see the repercussions happening. Sad to hear, but unfortunately, there's lots of that happening in recent times, especially with the layoffs in the enablement space. So what can you do? Yeah. Now, on a more positive note, I just briefly wanted to touch on a piece of content that Mike Kunkel has created recently. I think it was absolutely brilliant because he really talks about the aiming high in enablement and really being ambitious in terms of the impact that you're trying to achieve. Lots of people will get sick of the discussion by now, but I think it's an important one to be had when it comes to the discussion around enablement's business impact. He has, as part of his newsletter, created a video that was specifically talking about 
enablement, being ambitious and enablement not necessarily staying in its lane. We touched on revenue enablement previously and the notion that comes with that and actually creating a better customer experience, which is a much more ambitious goal than just delivering training. I think there's a certain part of the enablement community that is really ambitious on that front and really wants to push the boundaries. And then there's another part that advocates for staying in its lane. I just want to share with you what he had to say on that front. What I will say is this. One of my favorite quotes from author Richard Bach is from his book, Illusions. He wrote, argue for your limitations, and sure enough, they're yours. If you start out believing it can't be done, well, in that case, you're right. Do you really want to box yourself in that way and put those kind of career limitations on yourself? I hope not. Another favorite quote of mine is from a famous hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, who said, we miss 100% of the shots we don't take. If we allow a defeatist mindset to prevent us from trying or trying our best, well, again, you'd be right. It just can't be done. Which is interesting because I didn't make the building blocks of sales enablement up in a vacuum. These are things I've learned over the course of more than 35 years in some blend of the sales profession, learning and development, and eventually human and organizational performance improvement. You know what else is interesting? In the large majority of my career, while I was figuring out the building blocks of sales enablement and how to improve Salesforce effectiveness through large-scale organizational change, my title most often was sales training. It was National Sales Training Manager or Director of Sales Training or Director of Sales Training and Management Development. Keep in mind, this was before sales enablement was even a term. Only one of the companies that I worked at used the term sales effectiveness, and only one other titled our department sales performance development. In most cases, it was sales training or sales training and management development. A couple of great quotes in there, but I guess the key message or the key takeaway from my point of view is that Mike Kunkel is really living proof that even if your title is focused on sales training, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stay in that line. It doesn't mean that you are restricted around attempting to achieve a greater impact around sales effectiveness and orchestrating lots of different performance levers across the business to actually achieve that outcome. So I think something to consider for some people that are not sold yet on the notion that enablement really can create a broader business impact. And Devin, I'm really curious to hear because you also started out as a sales trainer in your career. That's right. Before you have developed a more holistic approach, which I know you follow now, did you first have that enablement title? Did that approach really come with that title? Or did you first actually follow that approach while still having that sales trainer title? Well, so my first proper enablement title was after my sales productivity title, where I was a product trainer for our global sales team. But that was technically looking back and I'm like, oh, I was on the enablement team. It's just not what we were called. My first real enablement title was when I was in account management enablement and then sales enablement. Both companies were total startups. So we didn't even have the chance to like start with training. We were building the foundation. So it sort of happened to me. And I feel very grateful that I stepped into organizations where we weren't just coming in and like delivering trainings on an elevator pitch or the new product, but we actually had to stand up 
our sales processes and methodologies, our customer journey, our onboarding programs, certifications, just like the basic foundation to get everybody on the same page. Like, are we all speaking the same language? Are we all doing the same things? Then we moved into, okay, what metrics are we tracking? We didn't even have some of that in my early organizations. We can establish benchmarks for all that for ramp. What's our sales cycle length? So I feel very lucky that my first few organizations, I kind of stumbled into this blank slate with very incredible leaders where I got to build all of those essential moments in the customer journey and in the sales process from the ground up. And so that was always just ingrained in my mind of like, well, I can't build a training if I don't have a clear sales process, clear metrics and all that. But I will say because of those early roles where we were just building, 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 and also again, delivering training along the way as we went, we had to set the stage before real like is enablement driving impact. We barely had those conversations early on because we were just kind of figuring out what does impact mean? What are we looking to do? We're making money. Great. I shared this before, but I always feel so grateful that those were the first kind of few roles I stepped into because it kind of forced me to think about my role in a very different way and got me thinking about the strategy behind what we were doing and the why versus a let's go do some training. So yeah, I feel like I got very lucky with those experiences. Excellent. For anybody who is interested in diving deeper into that subject matter, and if you feel like you haven't fully realized the potential of your enablement function, I have actually recently run a webinar together with Mike Kunkel that talks about seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact. So if that notion resonates with you and you really want to make sure that you increase the business impact of your enablement function, please make sure to tune in. Yeah, that brings us to the end of the show. No. We again haven't been able to cover every single item on the agenda, but there's always so much to talk about. Devin, thank you so much for joining again. Any closing thoughts or comments? I think my closing thought is going to be a, a call to action. So I just started a book club with my team on the book called Make It Stick. And it's about building better learning experiences to drive knowledge retention. And I'm definitely going to cover that possibly in next month's Team Eyes for our book report. So read along with me. Super excited about that right now. And of course, I know we started with Barbenheimer. Go see the Barbie movie. It's fantastic. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Looking forward to that one. Definitely will make sure. I, I personally haven't actually seen either of those movies. So I'm, I'm a bit... Felix. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit behind. I do know about the Barbenheimer phenomenon, obviously, which is why um, I mentioned it initially. But that's also on my to-do list. So good. looking forward to that book. And guys, thank you so much for tuning in as always. I will speak to you soon. And we will be back next month with the This Month in Sales Enablement September edition. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded, but very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. 
He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the building blocks of sales enablement learning experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's G-O-F-F-W-D dot com slash B-L-O-C-K-S.